All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Driven Minds. This is your host, Franz Bowen. This is your host, Travis Wicks. We have a wicked special guest this week. Uh, the man. Uh, what is it? How do, how do we say this? Um, um, literary mogul. Oh, wow. Whoa, that's, that's a <laughs> Whoa, whoa. Right. You know what I'm saying? Literary mogul. I like that. Media mogul, however you want to call it. Moving on up. Okay. The good brother, Devon Johnson. Hey, what's going on? How you doing? How you doing? Right. How you doing, man? I even had an intro. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I like talking about how I meet people and whatnot, but, um, you know, how I met Devon's kind of special, actually, because it's like, we did an event in June, and my good brother, Chris Finley, hosted it, and um, we got to chop it up. He was just talking about different companies doing ill things, and I dropped um, I dropped Blue Magazine's name, um, never meeting him in my life, never even meeting none of his staff or whatnot, but I'm like, yo, I... Peeping them, and I see they, they do dope things, and uh, what they're doing for the culture as far as their platform through the magazine. And um, the bomb was like, I mean, Chris at that time was like, "Word, you want to link up? You want to do something?" I'm like, "Hey, if I could meet him, we we'll see where it goes." And one, two, three, here we are. We collaborated on you know Blue Magazine's 10th anniversary dinner, and um, oh, I salute to that definitely. Beautiful event, yeah. beautiful event. You know what I mean? And um, you know, Devon, I, I learned so much from him since then. Um, we did a lot of other couple things, so you know, having him on the podcast now to tell us his story is amazing. So thanks again for coming on board, brother. Uh, thank you, appreciate it. Absolutely, yo, that's dope, man. So, uh, Devon, can you uh, so this this I, I was looking at your your LinkedIn, you know, yeah. um, well, I saw be updated, but <laughs> that's cool. You know what I'm saying? As long as it's honest on there, oh, it's you honest, know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's yeah, a, it's true. true, true, true. <laughs> and um, you know, just. So I, I saw it. So take me through. I wanted to go through like the beginning yeah. of, you know, like where are you from originally? So I'm from Long Island originally. Okay. I mean, I'm kind of from Queens too. I'm actually from the hood. I'm from Farakaway, Queens. Oh, where? Oh, oh man. Shout, shout out Farak. Farak. Hey. Uh, my family still has a huge uh, presence in Farakaway. They go to church out there. My mom's a school principal and a teacher out there. My grandmother went to. Brockwood High School, so all my aunts, uncles, and my mom. Oh, wow. Um, That's fly. I like yeah. the way you cleaned that up, by the way, because when somebody says, you know, my family got a large presence in Farm, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm good out there. 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 i am uh, yeah, my family, great-grandmother lived there on both sides, so I'm Queens, but they moved to Long Island when I was almost two years old. Okay. So I was raised in Long Island, but I've always had, like, the connection to, to Queens and to, like, just my people in general, where my family came from. That's um, what's up. But I'm, I'm a suburban boy. I'm an 80s baby, you know, running around the suburbs of Long Island. You know, just seeing that dew in the morning. Yeah, you know. seeing the dew in the morning, <laughs> hearing those birds chirp, you know? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's what's up. So, um... You matriculated through school, and then you ended up at Seton Hall, where you studied. So my first, um, well, I'll bring it back a little bit. So I went to school. I went to school in Uniondale. I went to uh, middle school in Uniondale, mm-hmm. and I had an option to go to Uniondale High School. I used to run track. Um, Uniondale High School is a really well-known track team. They pretty much always won. That's what's um, up. I was pretty fast at the fastest. What level. was your What was your event? Uh, uh, two hundred. Four by one. Okay. Two hundred. Four by two. Four by four. Oh, so. so yeah, like a, like, a, like a sprinter. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was way thinner than I am right now. <laughs> um, so I wanted to do that at the same time. Um, I know that 
my school district or my town reputation was changing. So the student body was changing, the environment in the school was changing, right. and I didn't want to get in any trouble to screw up going to college. Um, I always knew that college was not an option. It was just what I was going to do after high school. So I convinced, um, first, my grandmother to sign me up for private school. So I pretty much, I'm, I tell people I enrolled myself in private school, mm-hmm. which is Holy Trinity in, in Hicksville. Uh, it's a school I had heard, heard about through the grapevine, and academics were good, and reputation was good, and I knew for me it was the place for me to be at. Because um, I just knew that my, my town was changing, and the high school was changing. Shout out to you to high school, because my cousins graduated from there, four of my cousins graduated from there. So, so that's what's up. Yeah, so there's still a connection there. Um, my god sister, she most recently just graduated two years ago, and my god son's graduating May or June, whenever high school graduates next year. So I, um, I have a connection to public schools. So I don't want to hit the public school. My mom's a public school teacher, public school principal. Public school is great. But for me, um, I made a choice to go to private school because I guess knew I had better opportunities for me right. than what I wanted to do. So anyway, go to private school, Holy Trinity. I finished all my coursework when I was 15. So I was done with high school at 15. All, all wow. high school. Damn, what you do with all um, that spare time? I... <laughs> private school is about money, right? So what they do, you don't take health until 12th grade. And health is a key component to get your graduation credits. Okay. So it was either two years or a year and a half of not doing any work. Um, but instead, they had a partnership with St. John's University. So I started college at 16. Oh, that's fun. Um, oh, and it wasn't like AP courses. So you convinced your parents to, to send you to private school yeah. and then finish high school. I was trying to convince yeah, my mom to get me some children. Except for health. Wow. time I was 15, so... Um, junior, junior year, when I turned 16, I um, started taking college courses. And it wasn't like AP, it was actual um, St. John's certified professors teaching courses at my high school. Wow. Um, so I went to college as a sophomore. At that um, point, did you know what you wanted to do? I had no clue what I was doing. Um, uh-huh. Thank God I did it, though. I, I, took, uh, I took college level French, which is great because I can't speak a lick of French right now. But at the time <laughs> in high school, all my friends are Haitian. They all spoke French. I was like, mm. dope. I was good with French. Yeah. And my name was actually Devon. Y'all call me Devon, but it's an accent like you. Uh, Over the E. Okay. Uh, so I've so so been fake French my whole life anyway. <laughs> blue is not the French way. Like, yeah. Uh, this is connection to this. Oh, that's French way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, this is French connection that doesn't even exist in real life. That, like, yeah. I created for myself because my mom had an accent in my name. Okay, and it became not a ghetto accent, it became a French accent. So it's like, mm. it changes the whole perception of everything, right? So um, anyway, start high school, um, go to, start to take St. John's classes while I'm in high school. A couple of kids did this though, so it wasn't just me. Um, 12th grade took health, so I officially graduated high school, you know, 12th grade. Um, went to Seton Hall, went to Seton Hall on academic scholarship, full scholarship. Dope. I was in a yes. five-year program in the School of Business to get my MBA and BA. Um, so they, they gave you that money five years up front? No, so each actually, year. Oh, so, so you, you had to maintain those. So there's a trick to that, right? So you have to maintain, right? So so here I am, small town boy, right? Private school, sheltered life, didn't really leave. Like, I rode my bicycle since I was 17. Like, wasn't, like, advanced socially. Like, get to college and, wow, freedom. And mm-hmm. it's like, yo, this is crazy. So I'm trying to spend as much time, like, off campus I'm taking the subway to, to New York City, like to chill, and my grades began to suffer. And um, I lost my scholarship. Nice. Uh, sophomore year. And it's crazy. I had to have a 3.0 to maintain it. I had a 2.999. And wow, I've been tight. I'm still, still angry and still regret that. And I still, like, I don't know, like, I have some animosity for my peers because of the panel that approves 
for you to, you know, get one more chance is a panel of your peers and professors. So and, they, and the students definitely have a lot of um, a lot of say. They have some weight in this in this in the situation. Mm-hmm. It might have been five students and two professors. So it's like the vote would have went my way if all the students had, you know, fought for me to, to be in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, they voted for me not to continue my scholarship. Like it was hate, and then it's like I didn't, I didn't understand the hate because um, I don't know. I guess I think I see the good in people all the time, so I didn't know people actually there's haters. So yeah. my first time experiencing hater haterism. That's always that's in college. That's always the real. Yeah, I wasn't high school. Was, I was never like lead or I never had issues. I was always very popular, cool, yeah, right. roll with the cool kids, like everything. So like to go to college and like. These outside motherfuckers yeah. gonna like vote yeah. me off the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's not like a financial thing, because it's like if the school's putting up that. Yeah. Like I said, what's it, like 20 bands? Or? It was 28,000 at yeah. the time. You know? so they, they probably looked at your joint like, mm. Yeah, but here's the thing. Once, I, once I'm off it, they don't bring somebody into my space for that year, for that class. Yeah, that money go to the, uh, it's gone. the, the teacher's union. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like, yo, why wouldn't you want yeah, to help this guy? Well, I mean, give me some discipline. Give me some counseling. Give me some tutoring. Right. There's many other ways you but can. Keep that man. But keep me, in, keep me in school. Right? Yeah. Like, if I wasn't me, if I didn't come from the family I came from, that could have been like a crushing blow. Like, yeah. like done. Right. right? But the funny, this funny story. I also offered a scholarship to Hashim. Um, and that was for that's for theater. I took theater in, in high school. Oh, dear. that's what's up. So um, I was able to like, call Hofstra back and renegotiate that scholarship, which is crazy. But I'm a black man doing theater at a predominantly white school, so it's like I, there's still some clout, so there's still some currency of being a black man in certain environments. So right. I went to Hofstra for a semester after I lost my scholarship. I left Seton Hall for a semester, went to Hofstra, and I hated it. It's a bigger school, classroom size, huge. Yeah. I'm used to like private, small, you know, everywhere you know everybody's name, get the same seat every day. It's 15, 20 people in the class. And I was like 50 to 100 people. And it's like, I don't know how to learn like this. Like, I need to, and even private school for high school, it's like small classroom, 13 people. Like, right, I need right, to be able to raise my hand and have a conversation with the professor. Right, right. So I, I finished, um, I, I didn't do business at, at, um, at Hashir, I did communication, started learning journalism. And I saw that was like the place I want to go. Like I have a business mind, but like I don't like textbook business. I like real life business, hands-on business. Right. Um, so I started journalism courses. I decided to go back to Seton Hall, and I changed my major from business to communications. Okay. Um, interesting. Got back to campus, and people were like, "Oh, you're back!" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna not go to school, motherfuckers. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm back. I'm back." So I came back with a different mindset. Like you know, what I'm saying like, "Fuck these people that that were part of this um, organization." It was the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, scholarship um, for people of color mm. and was angry on campus, but that anger turned me to like, I gotta not prove to these motherfuckers that I'm gonna finish school. I'm gonna finish school right in front of you, not in the shadows. I'm gonna finish it without your scholarship and I'm gonna do it my way, whatever. Change my, change my major um, to communications and that's where shit just changed. Like, started taking PR classes and marketing classes from a, from a creative standpoint. So I'm creating like, you know, fake cereal boxes and doing producing a fake cereal commercial for like my product that I created. And that just like opened my world up. It was amazing and wonderful. The last three years of college, the last year and a half of college was, yeah. was awesome. So you really um, like found yourself, came into yeah, your Yeah, found own. myself in the dean's list. Um, when it was time to graduate, there was a, a special like ceremony the day before graduation. Like I represented a whole, my class in 99 and, and that ceremony is like completely, you know, flipped it. And again, I just became an adult in the sense of 
I knew I had to finish school from a very early age. Right. But I had to finish it my way. Like right. I had done everything the right way, like textbook right, but it wasn't it wasn't my way. So I had to change it up. Um, and I think that it, the creative side like just really entered me. Like and that's where I ended up doing blue. So in between that time, um, met this girl named uh, Lamise and one of my classes, my PR class. She got an uh, internship at Bad Boy and was like, yo, got an internship at Bad Boy. And this is like 99 to the, whew, in 1998, 99. So at the time, like, music industry is hot. They even you can drop out of school and get a job at <laughs> record label and make, and make money. So she's like, yo, that's an internship. I'm about to, like, stop going to school this semester. And I'm like, uh, I can't do that. Because I just lost scholarship exactly. two, two years ago. I done got loans in my mom's name. Like, <laughs> I got something to prove. I can't leave again. Right. You know what I mean? So she's like, yo, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm like, yo, more power to you. They, if you hear me, they let me know, like, you know, I mean, I'm done in six months, so like, make it happen, get a job, hire me as your assistant. Yeah. So, she worked at Bad Boy, was at, as, got an internship. She ended up getting um, a job at Def Jam. From mm-hmm. that internship, led to no meeting other people. Def Jam was hiring, they hired her in the PR department. And this is about four or five months later. She, um, so she like, I'm like, yo, we're at Def Jam now? Like, um, Polygram had just bought Def Jam out of Universal. It's a big deal. Right, right, They're right. now in Worldwide Plaza, 50th Street and 8th Avenue. Niggas are getting fucking assistance and shit. Making money like everybody eats. Budgets is <laughs> you get assistance. You get assistance. You get everything, right? So so she um she's like, yo, I think they might be hired. I'm like, yo, put my I'm about to finish school with two months. Put my resume in or whatever. Yeah. Um put my resume in um to the marketing department and I went for an interview and had no experience. All before this, my little jobs in college, I worked at Abercrombie & Fitch, I worked at Guess, um, Chess King, like all these like mall type shits. I have no music industry experience whatsoever. Mm. Um, but I like music, I'm a fan of hip hop, I'm a, I'm a child of hip hop, so right. I'm like, all right, Def Jam makes sense. I used to know every LL Cool J lyric, you know? Right. Used to know, know every Jay-Z, but he has too many albums now, you know, like, <laughs> not happening. At the time though, I knew all the lyrics and shit, so I'm like, right. I can do this, whatever. I go in, I You recited a lyric had, in your uh, interview? I never recited a lyric in the interview, but there was a JC connection. I'm going to tell you about. Um, I had cornrows at the time, too. Which was, oh, shit, I need that photo, bro. Yeah. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't need any record of you with cornrows. I had a the skinny photo. People have been trying to, like, get that. And there, there is you one. never told me I never believed it. It's a whole different time, right? right? right. Um, but, you know, in school, they teach you, you know, you wear a suit and shit. You don't wear cornrows, so put the cornrows out. Put as much like gel and water in my hair as possible to shrink to shrink it down. Mm. Had this corny ass. So like, you went to your the uh your interview Dominican. I look look at me, look at Dominican <laughs> with, with a green suit. Oh, like, oh, 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 oh man! <laughs> again, college tells you wear a suit like right. 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 Yeah, you look presentable. Get you know get your sideburns trimmed and shit. Yeah. Get the braids out. Mm. Um, so I go in, and I'm on time. Um, early. I'm sitting there on the side. And I'm like, yo, like, interview to the club, taking so long. Door opens to her name is Shanita Floyd, who uh, was interviewing me, and the door opens up, and who comes out with Jay Z? So, but now, but I'm, but I'm angry. They kept me waiting. Like, right, I'm right. not even paying attention to the fact that Jay Z just came out of the office. I'm more like, yo, bitch, like, <laughs> yo, I'm late. You know what I'm saying? So I, I just sit there and I ignore him. I don't, I don't, I don't fan out. I don't look up. No, fucked up your day. Like, <laughs> fucked up my day. Like, you know, it's kind of like, just get with him afterwards and shit. So I didn't react. And anyway, so I go on off to her and I actually, 
this interview went okay. I don't know. I ended up getting a job, but like, uh, they were like, you know, what's your experience? Like, yeah, I really had no experience, but mm-hmm. I'm a hard worker and I can I can learn anything really quickly and I can yeah. make whatever happen. Right, right. Um, turns out that's why I got the job. The no experience is what they wanted. Um, this is the mm-hmm. first time having a, an official assistant. They had someone before that didn't really work out. Mm-hmm. Um, someone came in with their own way and like okay. their own it was assistant somebody type. They wanted to mold somebody. They specifically, it was two females, uh, Deidre and Shanita. Um, they wanted to mold a guy. They wanted to work with a guy because that's what the dynamic they wanted. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that can work these days. You can't like say, I want a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, discrimination or some kind of shit. Right, I don't know. In 2000, so it's like, there's no rules, right? There's no, all that textbook shit I learned in college, out the window. Completely different set of rules of marketing and, and yeah, advertising yeah. and PR and everything in the music industry. Yeah. Um, I get the call like the Friday. No, damn, this is what happens. So I mean, I started partying in the city. There's a place called Joe's Pub down in Soho. I don't know if Joe's Pub is still open, but it was like a place where a lot of artists would go to and perform. It was like kind of like industry, like before Facebook, before Twitter, before Instagram. Like right, yeah. Only industry people would go to things for industry people. Yes. Um, I happened to meet the owner, a lady named Joey. So I used to always come there. One of the chicks that had interviewed me, um, DJ, saw me there. And I, now I'm back in my car rows. I got on my like, <laughs> fatigue shorts and used to go to the gym. I had my arms out, like a little like, cut off shirt or whatever. Oh, yeah. And she noticed me there. Mm. So when I, when I found out why I got the job is that in between, they saw two sides. They saw me in the suit looking proper at the interview. But they saw me in an entertainment environment mm. holding my own. Mm, and right. with that, they were impressed with this guy can do both things. Because sometimes oh. you're going to be in an office, right. and sometimes Jay Z's going to be there. Sometimes you can't pan out. Yeah. Right. You're going crazy. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. can we get a picture and an autograph? Or uh, yeah. we call my cousin on the phone and say hi to my cousin. Right, right. You got to be like, yeah, yeah. Yourself right. in the environment. Especially the music industry back then, too. Like, like, yeah, like, like, it was in the office, and also, like, you got to be prepared to, like, you know, being around artists, doing all types of all things. Types, all types of crazy shit. shit. You got to be ready for that. So yeah, so got the job and that was my, my, my foray into into entertainment. Um, that's the label history started. Yeah. Okay. That's so that's that's where like entertainment Yeah, that's where entertainment became my thing. I started to understand like the nuance of the thing. I started understanding like the, the, the image we put out in hip hop or music on videos is much different than inside the office. Jay Z was actually having a meeting about his marketing plan with the marketing department where mm-hmm. you only see the video, you only hear Big Pimp, you only hear Ace of Israel, but you don't know what goes on behind the scenes. It's actually like, he's a businessman, like literally like, yeah. and a lot of artists are, you know what I mean? That's yeah. that's that's the business of it. So I began to see music entertainment from from the inside, not from a, as a fan, but uh-huh. as, a, as a business person or, or the business what, of music. What was, what was that? Um, talk about a little bit, like, now you're coming in and you're, you're realizing this, was it kind of like a culture shock moment for you, or did you kind of like adapt very like quickly? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The culture shock was day one. You know what I'm saying? They hired me for eleven to seven, so seven came. I was like, "See you guys tomorrow. Have a good night." Yeah. So Shanita was like, if "She hears it, she gonna laugh." She's like, "So you're you're gonna leave at seven? Oh. And I was like, "I didn't know what to do. I was obviously a fucking trick question. Like, she meant sit your ass down. You're not going nowhere at seven. But then it's like, well, I got hired from 11 to 7. I don't really understand. Like, this is not how it works. See, I never got that. Because it's like, when you get hired in, like, those type of situations, I think people need to be transparent. Like, they kind of take it for granted that it's yes. like, okay, you're here, and we want you to give your all. But it's like, during the interview, you very specifically said that. 11 to 7. It's 11 to 7. And it's my mom and it's like, I think that's 701. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Other than, though, it's press. You know what I mean? So... Um, 
So I, I stayed like 15 more minutes, and then I left. Um, and it, this, it was a great environment, so people were very helpful. So um, all the assistants were very helpful. It wasn't like cutthroat. Like right now, you, you try to get a job anywhere, any industry, it's going to be cutthroat. Nobody's helping nobody out or nothing. But back then, it was a camaraderie. So they were like, yo, so we don't usually leave until the boss leaves. And that just became the rule. So sometimes the boss left, she left at 7, sometimes she left at 11. Sometimes, you know what I'm saying, she didn't come in. Like it's all type. Well, sometimes she's out of town in a different time zone. I had to wait till she leaves that time zone and goes home. So, like, uh, she's in LA. 11 in LA is 2 a.m. in New York. Mm. Uh, I was at my office to 2 a.m. sometimes. Yeah, I was just uh, hoping she never. But I'm getting overtime, though. So, this, like, after you step, you get the first check, you're like, oh, okay. This, okay, cool. Like, now you're also compensating me for this time. Right. It's not right, just right, like, right. I'm just sitting here yeah. not doing nothing. Um, and in that time, like, in those, those, those after work times is when I really began. To like, I guess, craft relationships with other people that work on the labels. So I'm meeting other assistants. We're calling each other. We're trading CDs. And CDs were like like gold back then. It's like you can get a box of CDs from Sony. You get them a box of CDs from Def Jam. You save mad money on like your CD situation. And then you like mad popular with your friends back home. Can you like yeah. get the CDs out? You get Beanie Seagull where everybody else gets it. Right, it's like, it's crazy. That's what Def Jam was like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, everybody. I mean, it was like LL Cool J, Jay Z. Um, there was Red Red Man, Method Man, Foxy Brown, Golden and Drew Hill. Right. Like it was, I mean, you name it. They had the Violator soundtrack. They had Nutty Professor, you know, two and one soundtrack. It was like wow. crazy times. Like yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. Def Jam put out was on the radio. You know what yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever yeah. album they put yeah, out, they went platinum or gold. That's when people were spending sixteen ninety five, eighteen ninety five for for a CD. Yo, R.I.P. Um, Tower Records, man. Huh? <laughs> I said, all right, oh, Tower all right. Red. Yeah, yo. Tower Red was the shit. Like, yo, you would literally go there and put those headphones on in the booth and listen to the album and then go buy the CD. Because you wanted to have yeah. an actual CD. Right. Um, so, yeah, like, music music industry was fun. It was great. I mean, being an assistant, having an expense account, taking car service home. I, my grandmother tells the story, like, one time I'm getting my laundry done. Just, I wasn't quite an adult yet. My grandmother sent my laundry for me. I sent my, my laundry home in a car service. Because, like... It was that dramatic. Yo. I became that dramatic and that engulfed in the music industry. Wow. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah, well, that ain't. That, that's like, that, that was some player shit. Yo. 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 No one can try that shit now. I don't even give you car service anymore. Right. You got an Uber right now. You got an Uber right now, right? But I said my laundry on the car service, and my grandma was like, oh, I, this guy, she had a preview after that. You know, she, was like, she was just like, wow. You know what I mean? Like, oh, and so it took probably last year. She didn't, even, she didn't really take what I was doing as like a real job. She kept saying, we maybe we may get a job that you used to have when you had the laundry come home in the car service. I'm like, I'm like Grant, like, I, I run my own business. You run your own magazine. I'm the boss now. Like, nobody going to take the fucking car service home. She's just kind of ashamed to ask for the Uber at that point. Exactly. So, yeah, so I did that whole thing, and then, but I was very ambitious, and I, I didn't want to be an assistant much longer. So uh, I was an assistant for two years, and I decided that I wanted another position. Universal, which is the parent company for Def Jam and Motown and all the small labels, Verb and all the small labels, mm. were hiring in the advertisement department, which was at the time called CLO, which is Common Label Operations. So they handled all negotiations with magazines, um, ad rates, or TV spots, or okay. just everything. They one, one, one department handled all the labels. So I'm like, I want to try that. I want to see how budgets work with across the board from from whether it's a, I don't know, a Nelly budget coming out of out of 
Motown time? Yeah, I think it was Motown with Kadara. The Nelly, a Nelly, or Universe, I don't know. It was Nelly Budget versus the Jay-Z Budget versus um, the Sum 41, which is on Island Records. Like, what does that look like? And I want to understand the, again, the, the, the business of music, not just as a fan. Like, yeah, it was great. I met Def Jam. It was great. I'm going to parties. It's great. Sitting in my laundry home and, and the car service. <laughs> uh, but am I really learning more than the lifestyle or am I learning the business? Right. And I want to learn the business. I want to see what's going on behind the scenes. Anyway, got interviewed, got the job at um, Universal Music Group in Commonly Operations as advertising coordinator. Again, it was a position out. So I'm not an assistant anymore. Now I'm a coordinator. I don't necessarily answer to anyone, answer to a team. Um, responsible for my own work. And I can leave at 7. You know what I mean? I can leave. I don't have to wait till midnight or 2 o'clock in the morning for my boss to leave. Right. So I took that job and I was there. I was there for about, I gotta say, three years, maybe even four. Um, and then things began to shift. And that's when the music industry started losing sales. Mm. This is when people weren't buying CDs as much. This Fuck is, Napster. This is Napster fucking shit up. And yeah. the problem with the problem with Napster, which same shit happened again with the with the taxi industry. When a technology exists yeah. and it's out there in the atmosphere, you gotta embrace it and try to make it your own. Yeah. And the music industry didn't act fast enough right. on they tried they tried to do that. They were prosecuting people. Yeah, right. This girl had to pay like two hundred fifty thousand yeah. for downloads. Nah, they she probably still paying that. She probably still paying a dollar a week, whatever it is, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it, it was like it was the dumbest shit. They were like, you know, they were just reacting like, oh we gotta check this kid down. Mm. You know, he's infringing on our money. Right. So can the music industry have become you know, a business also was about money. It wasn't about the creative side or about the art or about giving people the music, giving the fans and the artists that connection. Right. Artists weren't even touring that much, you know what I mean? Because no. it was making mad money off the sales. You really make money off of touring. Right. Um, but there was so much money off the sales that $20 for a CD, if the label, if the label gets 10 or 15, you still getting five, a million, you sell a million CDs once a year, that's $5 million you make it. Off of one album without having to tour, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. And the label's taking care of all the other expenses, like your photo shoots, the PR, like your marketing, like your car service, like all that shit. That's just like prehistoric now. Oh, it doesn't it doesn't exist, right? So um so labels came and they were like, we gotta cut the every department had to cut the newest hire. And I was the youngest, not youngest in age, but the newest um, hire in that department. Mm -hmm. So they laid me off. Um, but the severance package was amazing. Um, nice. I I got unemployment. Nice. Um, I don't know who was Bush's president. I don't know who was president, but it was like they did like unemployment extension where you can have like not just your twenty six weeks. It was like fifty two weeks, and then like it became ninety nine weeks. So nice. I, oh. I had a severance. Uh, so you <laughs> was in these streets. I was in the pretty much a paid vacation yeah. and got unemployment for ninety nine weeks. So wow. you know what I'm saying? Almost two years of, of unemployment. Yeah. Uh, and that time I just took, I just wild out, started throwing parties, promoting parties around the city. So I was a club promoter. Um, my first club promoter was uh, Lobby, which was on 38th Street and between 8th and 9th. It's like now, I think a, a condo builder or something like that. It's not even, there's no trace yeah, of the club was yeah, never was, even there. Yeah. Um, so I was parties there. I did like a, a partner with someone, did a party for a little camp, like a birthday party. Okay. And then I did a party for Erica Mina. Erica Mina was 17. We threw her 21st birthday party. Oh, wow. She was doing videos at the time. She was, oh, like, she was doing all the Terror Squad videos at the time. Mm. Um, and I knew her from Brooklyn, do some mutual friends. And so I started doing parties, and like that was kind of the, the, the side hustle, you know, was yeah. doing that and traveling or whatever. And about a year into that, I got a call from my first boss, my first boss from, um, from Def Jam, Shanita. And 
uh, oh, spare napkin. Uh, uh, from from Devchan, she's like, yo, I'm going with Kevin Lyles, over to Atlantic Records. I'm going to be heading the marketing department of um, Asylum Records. We're going to do this whole Southern music initiative. Todd Moskowitz is going to be the president. Um, this guy named Joey Aid. Who like used to work with Flex and like like Flex and the sister. This guy. Like, <laughs> I mean not this guy. At the time, no, the, Joey, Joey is a, a big deal. At the time was like I, I was removed from, from music, so I didn't know like who everybody was. Right, 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 right. These are people that, you know, were dope in the industry and could help break albums on radio. Um, it was really important to break southern music on New York radio. Because right. radio at the time, radio still leads, but radio was really important at the time. Um, because radio and DJs get music played, fans hear it. They consume the music. Right. Um, so she's like, yo, you can come over at marketing department. Um, you can be marketing manager. We're going to start working on the albums. And uh, I was like, yo, I'm down. Let's do it. You yeah. know, we, we get there. It was the old, it was uh, Sixth Avenue. We, were, we took over the old Electra floor. So Sylvia Rowley, oh, Electra just got shut down. Yeah. And Asylum came in, 24th floor, took over her, her wing uh, of the space. Um, so it was interesting to get there. And there's no computers, there's no pens, and no paper, there's just desks. And I will I will always say, Def Jam is a wonderful time that I, I was there, and I learned a lot. It's almost like a graduate of Def Jam University. You, you learn like, you learn to hustle, you learn to grit, but you also learn something when the brand already exists, right? Def Jam already had made a name for itself. You fast forward that four years later, I'm in Asylum, no one knows what this thing is. No one knows who these artists are. We had no computers, no pens. So we developed the record label from scratch. Oh, wow. Like, literally ordering notepads, ordering new chairs, ordering, I don't know, window cleaner. Like who, was your, who was your roster at that time? If you could so recall. Mike Jones, Lil Webby, mm-hmm. uh, Lil Boosie, Paul Wall. Um, so all like Swisher House. Yeah. And we had a relationship with Rap A Lot. Yo, okay. Well, hold on. So what year is this? Like, 2004, 5? Yeah, okay. I feel like four or five. Because you guys kind of got in early. This is like getting in on this sunlight is, I, before I, yeah, the sun I, is popping. Like, I, this I, is feel the like, I feel like Asylum like, kind of broke Southern music to the main yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's like the heavy. Yeah, because yeah, Swisher yeah. House, man. Like, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. This is the moment where like a transition. Mike Jones had a song where he was like, you know, 21480, whatever whatever the number was. Like, 4804. Yeah. So that was the moment we had all the yeah. t-shirts. We ordered t-shirts, all that. So... It was dope. I think the tunnel might have still been open at the time. And, oh, wow. and oh. this other club on, on 39th Street, I remember Mike Jones performing and Flex and I did DJ in there. Like, cheetahs? Not cheetahs. Fuck. Uh, it's the old. I'm going to come to me. 39th Street, two floors. It became Culture Club later on. Speed. Oh. Club Speed. Yeah, Wowzers. This is New York history. This is like. This is bananas. You know yeah. Um. <laughs> Fucking crazy, yeah. Club Speed. You know I mean? The Speed was still open. Like, yeah. hip-hop parties still happening. Artists were performing in the club because the radio, you know what I'm saying, was there. Like, it was it was dope. Um, so that was a great learning experience. And that's when I be- began to say, turn the, the party thing. My party was called Blue Party. Um, to turn the party thing into a bigger platform, into a real business. Okay. So 2005 is when I incorporated um, Blue Life, or Blue Magazine that became Blue Media. Um, and that's when I, like... I saw the brand quality of Def Jam, and I also saw the the desire to get a label bigger than what it was at Asylum. And I'm like, okay, I can start my own company. Like I can I can do this. Like I've seen it, I've seen it happen 
on both sides. Right. I know what it takes to build it, and I know what you got to do once you're on the other side of that build, right. and how do you sustain it, and how do you have the quality um, go out? Because no matter what, the time, no matter who you signed to Def Jam, they were getting on the radio. They mm-hmm. were getting I Want Soul because the credibility of the label right. was there, right? right. Mm-hmm. And then this new thing with Asylum and Atlantic and Kevin Laws coming over and that whole team, that shift, um, Mike Kaiser doing radio in Atlantic. So it was, it was familiar. The Def Jam, a lot of Def Jam, Julie Greenwald came over, so it was very familiar. And they did that again, I think, with Atlantic Records at the time um, and really building that out. And about a year later, a year and a half later, me and my boss, shout out Shanita. Uh, we're still really good friends and we, we nice. chat and we meet and she gives me advice nice. all, all the time and we collaborate on different things. We came to a crossroads. Um, it could have been my, maybe my cockiness or just my immaturity um, or just our lack of communication with each other. Maybe I was too familiar because she was my old boss at Def Jam. She's my new boss now. I have a new position. Um, so we came to a crossroads and, and parted ways and I haven't had um, like a job for anyone else since then. Oh, wow. Um, so, so let me ask you a question. So starting a magazine, though, um, that time period, at, I guess when it was at Def Jam, when they put you in a new position where you were working with... Um, uh, uh, there's Universal the Advertising Department. Yeah, so that is what kind of, like, planted the seed. I started seeing money in magazines. Mm. When I started Blue, there was no more money left in magazines, but right. I didn't know that. I didn't see that coming, right? right. I didn't see people starting to consume um, media on tablets and on computers and websites. So we started Blue very lean, you know, but as lean as we started Asylum Records, there was right. no so paper, you, no pen. You, you knew how to pretty much. Yeah, I knew where I wanted to go, which right, is like right. that Def Jam car service moment, but I also understood what, what, what it took that I saw the other side of it. Um, so we started Blue very lean, you know what I mean? Right. We, didn't, we didn't try to overexpand. I think Uptown Magazine had just started, Vibe was celebrating this fifth year, like um, those were surviving, but also I think 3,000 magazines had like, Left newsstands right, right. um, in tw- in two thousand six or whatever. Digital, digital, digital was like coming come on board, right, and right. everyone was scrambling. I mean, every industry kind of got rocked by, by by digital. And I think Facebook, you know, MySpace might have still been popping around right, this time. Right. So we had a little MySpace page, or whatever, and we just started very lean, and it worked out for us. I still had the parties, so the parties became like my marketing ground. Yeah, I can promote the brand through the parties, get magazines out of the party. Uh, um, still had a lot of music industry connections. So as far as content, we've never had an issue with content. Uh, okay. You know, my first cover was with Khalees. I mean, she had just did Milkshake. Wow. Huge, huge, huge thing. We, had, we didn't have the credibility to do our own photo shoot, so the label gave us um, an exclusive photo of her uh, for the covers, dope cover. Um, one of our best covers, you know, ever, I, I still think. Uh, my friend... Damon, Damon, legendary Damon. Oh, who okay. he was. This is this. Bro, was I've also, been to one of his parties that um. It was this underground thing in the um. Meat packing yeah. district, yo. It's tough to get in. Fire. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, so, I seen some things in that party, boy. Oh, no, <laughs> legendary Damon parties been dope <laughs> since. But this is since a um, This is since um. Fourteenth Street. Yeah, he's fucking had the name. I exhausted. Shit. Yeah, it was um, on Sundays. It was like an underground vibe. What was the Lotus? Called? He used to still he used to do Lotus on 14th Street. Okay. He used to, he used to the door there. Um, and he was one of his best friends. So I got an inside scoop oh, wow. with him. So like we had these wonderful moments. So um, of people that I've known or worked with throughout. So starting blue content wise wasn't hard right. at all. Um, still a lot of money in the bank from the party time, uh, throwing parties. 401k was still popping. And I, and I saved money from, 
you know, my service package and save money from um, working and all these different things. So, and I have really good credit. I think at one point I had seven American Express cards. They had just launched a blue one. It was gold, platinum, <laughs> yeah. business platinum, business gold, wow. um, the regular green one. So it was like, I fucking fuck had every credit card. So you just never paid the minimum. That's what you're saying. <laughs> Major key alert. Yeah. <laughs> Keep good credit. Yeah. Keep yeah. It's important. Because, I mean, you, imagine telling someone, you know, I went to a couple of, like, VCs and, like, these investor fucking meetings and shit. They're like, yo, we're not investing money in any print media. Like, we're not doing it. We don't. Great idea, wonderful, but we don't believe print media is going to be around anymore. So we think it's going to be gone in a year. So we're not going to invest anything. So... I believe in my project, my, my, my project, and I believe in my brand. Mm-hmm. So I like use my own money to do. So I think at the end of the day, it's probably like ninety thousand dollars, and I use my own personal money and credit combined to start start the magazine. Now I probably could have shaved off forty thousand of that if I knew what the hell I was doing. Right. But a lot of that was just wasted spending, just not knowing any better. Um, but I did. I made I made it happen. You know, um, on, on my own self self finance. Went to friends and like, yo, I need you guys help with this. Uh, at one point, like twenty five people had helped me. To develop the brand, uh, we used to so, meet. We used to meet up in Harlem. There's a coffee shop. It's not there no more. It was called Tribal Spears. Um, mm. The owner's name was Summer um, or Spring. One of the two, one of the seasons. Her name was. Um, she let us use that space to, to work out of in nice. the art gallery, part of the coffee shop for for free, um, and we made it happen. And we started off doing the first issue. It took me like a year to get it out. Um, it actually launched. Uh, 2016 in June um, at Boulevard, which is, I don't know what the club is in right now. Uh, it was on Bowery and, and Spring. But it's, it's been so many different names at this point. At one point, it was the General's oh, Restaurant. Downstairs. Right, right, yeah, right. Um, yeah it, was, it was a lot of clubs in the time in the city. It, it was dope. Right. Had relationships with clubs because I do parties or whatever. Right. Um, we did a big launch party. Uh, Wendy Williams hosted the party. Oh, nice. uh, and this is Wendy Williams before right. she was fully off the radio. She was still doing radio and TV. People weren't sure if the TV show was going to you know, right. work out too well. It's probably when um, Charlemagne was still over there. Right? Charlemagne was still over there. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a good moment. And, and, and luckily, like, again, relationships made it work because media was definitely declining. Like, any, if I look back and if someone asked me, you know, should I start a magazine right now? I'm like, hell no, it's just gonna be fucking crazy. Right, like, right. Yeah. Don't do it. Because digital started killing the game. When digital, you- digital started trying to kill the game. Um, but we rode the storm. And what, what, what I started to do, yeah, I started to read about, about failures. I got this book called Good to Great. And Good to Great talked about what makes companies good, what makes them great. And it's one about knowing your brand, um, having good people, and staying focused on one set goal. So you can you can notice what your competition is doing, but don't let what they're doing influence what you're doing. If this is your your passion and your goal, and you get all your people behind that, you gotta stay steady for that. Because when all the noise clears, all the dust settles, you're still stuck with your brand and what your direction is. So instead of me trying to shift and do everything digital, but I didn't have the money to even make those risks, mm-hmm. I saw Condé Nast with all their magazines trying to figure out a digital strategy. I saw Hertz with all their magazines trying to figure out a digital strategy. And most of the shit did not work. Yeah. Everything they started, like those first five years of like the digital conversion, nothing worked, right? Because what we know now is that people respond to what touches them um, authentically and organically. Right. You can't manufacture um, relationships between consumer and brand. That's got to be the consumer really giving a fuck about the brand. Um, so I knew if I made my product good, um, gave it quality, didn't sacrifice quality, even though like it made me go broke almost 
so many times because I didn't want to get cheap paper. I didn't want to have bad photographs. I didn't want to have shitty writers. Um, I wanted to give quality. I knew that if I studied that and kept that forward, we would end up on the other side. And we're we're now discovering that other side. Right. So I want to. This is this is where I want to kind of dwell on a little bit. So you're you're beginning a magazine in an era where digital is starting to take over, which. In hindsight, it's kind of crazy. It's like paper's not really going anywhere. Yeah. You still need paper. But at the same time, there's this panic in the market. Nobody really knows what the next five years is going to bring. And you now decide, okay, you make that conscious decision. Like quality is what's going to save me at the end of the day. So what, how did you, um, what, what did you start to focus on? What did you start to fine tune? Like, because I, I read... A, a little bit um, uh, interview that you did with Black Enterprise, and you were talking about kind of like your your aesthetic and what your where your um, marketing was going to towards like a, a, a not necessarily urban, yeah, but more uh, a more refined palette. Yeah, well, you know what it is is that you know again working in the music industry, you see it on the back end, you see us you know manufacture moments for consumers to, to, to take in. So whether it's renting a house for a video or renting girls for a video or renting gold chains for a video, I know that behind the scenes, there's a whole real side that people need to, to know about, that, that all black men are not this manufactured you know, persona that the industry, whether it's entertainment in general, like music or TV, film, whatever, is manufacturing. There's other black people like me and my friends, people I grew up with, that never were going to be rappers, that were never going to be athletes. They're just regular, everyday dudes, you know, trying to, like, do good, go to school, raise a family, make an impact, and, right. and stay out of jail, right? So I knew that that audience existed. Um, there was no data on that audience, but I knew it existed. So one of the first things we did in 2009, we did a consumer market survey. We partnered with a company called Community Marketing Index, I think. Um, through my ad sales agency, Rivendell, and we measured our audience and what they liked and what they were into. And I began to cater my content towards that. Real quick, mm -hmm. where was your audience in the early goings? So most of them college students, um, they were, like, I won't say boys next door, because that's like, what, what does that mean, right? They were like multicultural. They were what I would say the beginnings of this millennial moment. Gotcha. Where, where no labels matter, right? No one has to be too tough. No one has to be too soft. Gotcha. No one has to be gay. Nobody has, yeah, right. nobody has to be gay. Nobody has to be straight. Right. You, you can be cool to dress nice. Right. You can be cool shit. to like put on shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't have Travis to always talks about that, man. There were times when you had to be like a uh, rough man. No, like so I, I would say like this is like <laughs> before 2005. And I say this shift started happening between 2000, 2005. It was, a, it was a mending. Uh, I think Farnsworth Bentley, right. we made one but I think like that showed like okay, Diddy started right. to like his clothes got smaller. They weren't True. the big baggy shiny suits. Um, people were actually wearing suits and videos. They started getting stylists. Started getting stylists. stylists. Yeah. Um, the money started to shift. So these artists, hip hop artists, and even athletes, started having their own money. Right? They started wising up because now there's more people of color and professionals, professional services like lawyers, accountants financial advisors that are now helping black people, they're not getting robbed anymore, right? right. The industry used to rob everyone. The, the industries themselves, sports industry and music industry, the talent was the last to get paid. 
but now they're finding ways to get paid themselves. So they can now start to define who they are for themselves. And if they want to wear an expensive pair of shoes, they can wear an expensive pair of shoes. And who gives a shit? It's my money. It's my style. Um, so we start to embrace that moment. Um, Andre 3000 with, well, um, Outkast in general, very creative. Definitely. He right? definitely wanted Yo, four, right? four, So these, these, are, these are all things that I'm paying attention to. Like, these are just one-offs, but it's beginning to make make some sense, right? Mm-hmm. And we knew if we paralleled what we did to that, um, we would win. And well, win, you know, it's relative, but we would be able to weather the storm and, and, and move forward. So as I saw Double um, XL kind of like, not lose his weight, but like shift away, because you had the source, you had Double XL, and you had Vibe that just went weird. Like it, it was so dope and innovative and, and forward thinking. Um, and then it started to try to compete with, that again, they didn't read that book, right? They started paying attention to the competitors, and they yeah. thought the source or they thought XXL was a competitor, but like, no, you should have been the third one showing a different side. They already had hip-hop, you know, um, thugged out, covered. Why don't we show the other side? So we begin to do those, those sort of things. Um, you just embrace that, that shift and change, the pre-millennial, you know, moment of men of color embracing their coolness and their swag. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have a um a favorite cover thus far? Um, first cover is always great. Absolutely. Um, shout out to Kalise. Mm. Um, the the cover that I guess started to this transition for us from I guess somewhat niche into kind of doing more mainstream stuff. Our first signed male artist was Ryan Leslie. Um, okay. I mean, he was signed to Motown. First album in Motown from the producer to now in front of the camera. Performer, um, he had a red leather jacket on. We, we shot it in Harlem. Latifa Newsom styled it, and I thought that was it. It's called transition complete. Um, one him transitioning from producer to now artist in front of the camera, and then us transitioning from like this small quiet brand to now like this is who we are. Let's define it. We are the cool black guy um, that's moving forward and progressive and well traveled and well spoken and creative and has money in the bank and went to school and all these different things. Um, so that's that's one. Um, and then I think the, the most recent one would be our millennial issue with, with Trevor Jackson on the cover. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was great because I think Trevor represents all the work that we've done for 10 years um, in embracing this cool, um, non-one-dimensional black male character. I think he represents that. He's, a, he's an actor, he's a dancer, he's a singer, um, he's yeah. creative, he's a cool guy, he's accepting of all people. Um, he can be that. It doesn't have to be uncool now. He, he came up in theater like under Disney. He was in Lion King. Um, and then he went to ABC and was on the show um, American Crime. And that's like an intense, you know, show. Very tough, you know, content. Um, but it represents who we are um, as a brand and represents him and then where the world is going and with, with, with kids. Dope, dope. First of all, we gotta, it's only a few of us saying we gotta give him a clap for 10 years. Uh, 10 years of you know, we celebrated that um earlier this year. I believe it was July twenty sixth. It was July twenty sixth. It was a marvelous celebration. Marvelous event. <laughs> Every side got a chance to you know come on board production and whatnot. It was just a beautiful event. His family was in there. Mom yeah. was in there. How did that feel? Also, I want to talk about how did that feel, but also hitting ten years and hitting your ten year anniversary. Also, being able to honor Emil Wilberkin, somebody who showed you. Showed you parts of the way and helped you out throughout your process. So how did that whole? Yeah. Thing? So so you know, for me, I'm all about the work. Like I, I really, I really don't give a shit much about the celebration. Like 
the next day I was in the office working. You know what I mean? I think I actually... Yeah, you know, you came right I came out. Yeah, I flew in. I flew in from class. Yeah, where was that class, by the way, my brother? So, I took the class this summer on social media marketing management through Harvard's business school. Mm. Um, it was a three-week summer intensive. I actually lived on campus. I lived in Adams House, which is one of the dorms. That's dope. Um, on campus. And it was a fifth-floor walk-up. No, no AC. Just a fan. That didn't really work. Um, it was intense, but I needed... To, to understand, because social media is like something that people have followers, right? Which is cool. Some people have more than others. Mm-hmm. But what is that engagement? What are you really selling? What's the value? What's the currency mm-hmm. of that? And I wanted to understand it from like a clinical side. Um, what do these likes mean? What do these followers mean? And what do I owe these followers as a brand um, to keep their loyalty? Because, you know, people can switch and change, you know, anytime they want to. So um, I wanted to learn that. So I sacrificed, you know, a month of my, of my summer to be a student again, which is something I haven't been in almost 20 years. So um, wow. it was quite interesting. I finished up, I actually work on my uh, my thesis next semester, and I actually graduate with my master's in uh, journalism. Amazing, that's amazing. So um, something I've worked on for the past three years or whatever. Um, but your original question was the, the 10 years, how did it feel? For me, I it felt great, wonderful, cool 10 years, I need to do 10 more, like, so that didn't really mean much, but it really felt good to have my mom my grandmother, my uncle, who's also my grandfather, um, in the space. Uh, because I, I, once my credit cards ran out, I had to use my mom's. You know, grandma gave me a loan several times. Uh, my uncle's, before I had my own car, was like my damn near chauffeur driver, That's back cool. and forth, doing things for me, helping me out all the time. So for me, it was more about celebrating them. Um, let them just sit back and chill. I got them a car service, like nice. um, SUV. Uber, you know, not no private car service, but oh, my grandma looked out was real fancy. Yeah, Uber black is lit though. You know what I'm saying? You know, <laughs> Uber, Uber black is lit. You know what I mean? Damn it, car service. Damn it, car service. I was like, oh, credit card, great. Um, so that felt good to have a common car service and send them back out in the car service. Um, that was like one of my major highlights. Um, and then of course Emil, Emil at the time, Emil had just finished up at Giant Magazine, so he worked at. Oh, wow. He worked. He was at vibe for, for a long time. Um, and then he went to Giant Magazine and before Giant he went to Essence. But in between that time, um, he was like, you know, freelancing and working. And I came to him and was like, I know you don't know me, but I need help. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to do this thing. I want to do my own magazine. And I don't really know if I'm doing it right. I don't have a background in magazines. Um, I tried to get a job at Vibe um, years before and I didn't get hired, but I know you're not the only one where you're willing to like, you know, advise me and be like a mentor or whatever. And he said, yeah. And he was like, you know, so where are you at with it? And at this point, I had already done a 48-page mock-up of the magazine, like binded everything. Um, this is before the Khalees cover. And it was like my 48-page, I don't know what shit was that, um, just mock-up of the magazine is going to be. And he was like so impressed by that. He's like, this is crazy. I didn't expect you to have... This much, this much stuff. Right. So I'm gonna give you this, and he actually had another mock-up of uh, like maybe a hundred pages of like what this branch looked like going forward. He gave it to me, wow. and so I infused all of that um, real journalistic. The man went to Columbia, Jeff School of Journalism. Like he's like oh, nice. a real like journalist type right. guy, right? right? Went to Hampton for undergrad, and uh, he gave me that, and it, I was like, okay, I just see what I did, which looks cool. But it didn't really have any direction or substance. So what he gave me when I infused that created the platform for for Blue Ridge right now. Nice. That's dope. And it was great to hear him when he accepted the award. 
he was like, you know, I'm now inspired by you. You know, Minty inspired me to do my own thing. So he's creating his own platform right now called uh, called Native Sun. So that's how it should be, man. One thing I want to ask you too is um, because there's a lot of stuff I didn't even know. Um, you finish high school early, you go to college, you go, you um, you start with in the music industry, working for different labels, you excel there. You go from that to starting your own magazine, then you go back to the college to you know sharpen up skills. Mm-hmm. Bro, where does that come from? Where I obviously came from your ambition came from from early, from young, but where is there somebody that, you know, that is it by design or is it wow. somebody that inspired you? Where where does, you know, to be and and, and it looks like you just even from like kind of fearless in a way, right? Like you just yeah. how you approach things. A lot of people get scared to make those type of moves because, you know, obviously you gotta deal with large sums of money. You gotta do all types of shit, but you seem like you just grab it on and you just go with it. Where does that come from? You know, I don't know. How, I don't have a, a, a straightforward answer for you for that, but I, I'll try to answer it as brief as possible. Um, I think one of the one of the key things for me growing up, I didn't really hear no a lot, so there wasn't anything that I couldn't do or have, mm. and not from a from a spoiled sense. I understood where money came from. I knew my mom, single mom, went out to work every day. I understood she had at times part-time jobs to put herself she got her masters and all that stuff now she's a preacher um so so i understood where the money came from and i and i also knew if i wanted more money i had to go get a job so like um i worked at roy rogers when i was like 14 like roy rogers it's now mcdonald's we used to be on hence turnpike right by Hofstra. um but even taking it back so my, my first business I guess I was eight years old, so I lemonade stand. It was lemonade and iced tea. Right. I sold it for ten cent, um, right in front of my, my my house. My grandfather built me like a little bench to put the iced tea on. Right. I didn't know how to make iced tea, but my uncle Mark made it for me. He like it was like sun tea. So it was like you put tea bags in the water, you put the jar in the sun, and then the sun makes the tea. Um, yeah, who knew? <laughs> so I, I sold that, and of course my family and my neighbors were the ones that bought it because they were just supporting like mm-hmm. but I thought I really was running a business you know what I mean because yeah, yeah. you don't know but like that's good they, they gave me that support um, my next business I guess I was like maybe 10 my mom took me to a Costco one time or maybe in BJ's one or two I think it might have been BJ's and she bought me a jar of uh, blow pops lollipops and she said now you can't eat all of them or whatever I'm like cool put them in my room I would bring five to school I would have one, I would sell the other four. So I'd make a dollar. It was like a quarter piece lollipop. Right. And I did that a couple of times. And it was like, okay, I was making like maybe $10 a week off of selling lollipops. Right. So again, not even realizing that that I did start, start a business, but I was starting a business now. I was fucking selling candy, right. you know, off market to, to students outside right. of the cafeteria, I'm selling lollipops, right. right? So that's that 10. So then I guess around 12 years old, 12 or 13, I got a paper route and um, delivering a penny saver. Um, you know, driving oh, right yeah. around. They did that too. Um, they, it was like, should have been three people, but two of the kids, either I think they got to high school or went to college or whatever, so I took on three routes, not just one. So I took it on, but then I had all the kids on my block like work for me. So like, each of them had a different zone. We would, my family and I all together would package them. I think it was like 5,000 pennies they had to roll up, stuff them, whatever. Uh, so that was another business since I started. I, I got myself a job, but also employed neighborhood kids. Two years later, like 14, um, one of my boys, named is Abbasi, he lives across the street. He got his first DJ equipment. And this was like techniques, the needle just came out and shit. And um, uh, we used to go to, oh, I forgot the name, it was Jamaica Avenue, get records, like vinyl or whatever. And um, carts? And crates? 
No, at Gertz on Jamaica. I don't know if it, well, I don't know if, I don't know if it was at Gertz, but we were, I don't know if it was fucking, oh, I'm old as shit, I don't remember this place. It was like, not Reggae Nation, it was some like, some name, and uh, we got records, but I wasn't good at DJing. Like, we all like, the whole, whole hood tried to like learn <laughs> on the turntables, but I just couldn't understand like, Getting both of them to do the same sound, yeah, same. Yeah, them, logically it makes sense, and I guess it's not really a logical thing. You got to have that skill. Yeah. It, it goes against logic the way yeah. real DJs <laughs> DJ, right? So much respect to DJs that use vinyl, right? Um, so instead, I'm like, you know, I'm gonna be the manager of the DJ company. So we started. It was called Vibrations International because we swore, we were all American, but we swore we were like Jamaican, Haitian, Puerto Rican, because like, yeah. it was cool to be something other than just like corny ass American, so we called it Vibration International. Oh, and we, yeah. But at the same time, I guess it's like understanding cultural shifts, right? Because the world became more multicultural, so we had a brand that catered to Vibration International. That sounds like a reggae-ish type of like company. Like work now. So it would work out. So we got <laughs> hired by like, all these people who have a backyard or Boschmets, like down basement parts or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, that was like, an excellent pronunciation of that uh, word. Thank you very much. My skills with the accents. Um, and then my mom would hire us to do like, the end of the year, she would do a party for her six, six, the sixth graders. So we would like DJ that. So that became a real like, production DJ company. We did all the high school parties in our neighborhood. Nice. And that was open. And then we just, we graduated and went to, uh, went to college and I separate ways. But, um, and then right after college, um, not with house. So after I left something out. So after after Def Jam Asylum, parallel with Blue in a sense, for two years I owned a franchise, Atomic Wings, up in Harlem. Hold on, wait. I left that part out. Hold on, wait. You're not just going speed past that. Atomic Wings. Like, yeah. Hold on. So, so yeah, I opened the first Atomic Wings franchise above Saturday Night Street. Wait, and this this was pre college. No, it was after college. It was after college. Um, this is ah uh, shit, two thousand eight. I think. So you were still at the label. This is when after. This you. is blue. This is after, this is after oh, label. I was in the music industry. And this is you, you opened up your time. Yo, this uh, is a fly. Like I forgot all about that. What was that buy-in like? If you don't mind my asking. It wasn't expensive. Like twenty-five thousand. So it, was, it wasn't crazy. Mm. It, was, it was low franchise fee. It seemed like low margins, That's but cool. we had no idea what we were doing. And two years into it, it was four, five of us total. Two years into it. We had to sell it for like break even because we had no clue what the hell we were doing. Mm. And it's crazy. I only speak to like one of the partners out of the five. Like it actually blew on some friendships. Um, and I, I, I that's that's the one regret that I do have is that we weren't strong enough as a as a friend unit to mm. to weather it because um, oh this is like actually key to like everything I'm talking about right now. Like failure is okay, right? And I think our egos are still crushed because we failed at something. These are all like alpha males that always succeeded and did well. Like, shit, I, I done did from DJ company, paper route, to mm -hmm. Omaha Magazine. I can't fucking sell chicken wings properly. Like, mm -hmm. this is crazy. So I think uh, egos are crushed. And it really wasn't a failure because like, what I learned in that about paying payroll taxes and negotiating a better lease with your landlord and understanding sales tax and all these different things, it was a learning experience. The failure really isn't a failure. It's actually a learning, a learning situation. So... Um, yeah, the only regret about not having a restaurant anymore is that the friendships were broken um, out of that. Gotcha. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. Yeah, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. You don't ever lose, but yeah. I, uh, yeah, so I forgot about that. So I'm like a serial entrepreneur, in a right, sense. Right, indeed. Um, and I didn't answer your question about the drive. When I used to come home from college, um, every time I came home on a weekend and I walked in the door, my grandfather would say, the king is home. 
So that was like subconsciously, mm. you know, I mean, this is the man that I, he raised me. He's like my dad, my, my grandfather. He worked every day, right? I saw him as a hard worker. He was like the essence of a man to me. So to have the man that I think is the man call me a king, that does something to you. It makes you feel like you're a king. So there's no, there's no sense of like uh, failure or there's no sense of you can't do something. But you're, you're a king. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I do what the fuck I want to do. I'm a king. And the only person that has to approve me or give any kind of accolades is my family. And to have the, the patriarch and the family acknowledge me just from walking in the door, mm -hmm. coming from college, that's a big deal. Yeah, that seems like that relationship made. Yeah. That, I think that, that probably shaped, um, as an adult, who I am, you know what I'm saying, today. That's dope, man. That's fly. So directionality wise, um, and cause you you seem to have like the gift. I remember reading um, Power by Robert Greene, and he talks about one of the keys to power is sensing the times. And you seem to have to be very um, uh, sensitive to like yeah, the, the shifts and change, right. you know. And you're so in 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 keeping in that breath. What are what are some of the things that you anticipate yourself getting into in the next? I guess you know fiscal, or even the next five years. Yeah, so I think I think blue's gonna always be around, but it's always print. I still think black people need to see each other in paper and hold it and touch it. I agree. And I feel agree. it and see it. Um, so that's one component. The other is that you know we're now no longer Blue Magazine Inc. We're now Blue Life Media. So it's you know we're gonna grow, uh, maybe not vertically, maybe horizontally. We're gonna start absorbing other companies, immersing with them, and like offering this like diverse platform for media, whether it's film production. Um, podcast production, radio, TV, scripts, photographers, act actors, repping them, like the whole full service. Nice. Um, there still isn't that type of company out there that's like that's like a WME or like a Viacom. Um, BT is the closest thing that could have been that, but they got bought up by Viacom, so it's not really black-owned media on that scale. Mm -hmm. So that's where I want to grow um, the brand to be a conglomerate, where yeah. we have a bunch of other... Um, Black-owned media that we can empower and encourage and support and help grow. Yeah, thinking about like what you just said, um, actually jogged a, uh, a thought. So reading that Black Enterprise um, mm -hmm. interview that you did, you were talking about how we're about like a handful of decades removed from Jim Crow. Yeah, and the importance of seeing you know people of color on newsstands. Can you can you touch a bit? About that, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, dude. Like, you go to any newsstand right now, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone go any. You can go to Harlem, go to newsstand. You can go to Detroit, go to newsstand. Ninety percent of the covers are of white people, right? So you only have one or two percent um, of covers of black people on it. Um, and even then, it's not. It's not routine. It's not regular. It's not. It's, we have It's not a regular thing to always see. So you have magazines like Ebony. You have Essence. Um, Jet. Jet was no longer around. Yo, RIP Jet, Jet, man. Jet, Jet was Beauty the thing, bro. Beauty of the Week. I used to have, I used to have the Beauty of the Week on my, on my wall in my room. Oh, so, man. Yeah, everybody which, had it. Which is incense. I had the King uh, Magazine, but that's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. That's still a few years later. Yeah, so like, um, we haven't, we don't have a lot of media that, that we, we think we see ourselves on TV as like athletes or as musicians that we think we actually control this, this image, right? Mm. We don't, until you control the media, you, you can't control the dialogue. You can't tell the true stories, right? Um, so I think that it's so important for black media, for black media um, to exist. So anything I can do, you know, we're a small company. There's much bigger companies out there, but we're the, one of the largest black-owned 
uh, new media companies, right, that has been launched in the last 10 or 15 years, right? We may be the only one at the time when I started that survived to, to 10 years later. Um, but yeah, like slavery ended, what, 150 years ago? Um, 100, 100 years after that, we just got like the Voting Rights Act. So it's like, we're not, we don't have decades and decades and centuries of seeing ourselves in media. Yo, I always say that like black people are like, or at least um, American black people are like the teenagers of, right. the, of the world. Black you know, yes. you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. it, it, we're really so far behind the curve. Yeah. And everybody's trying about. to convince yeah. us that like, right. yo, you're... But it's like, nah. Like, no, it makes, it makes me very angry. So I, I, I have an argument. This is so tangent, but uh, <laughs> it's going to sound so bougie. I was in Palm Springs about two weeks ago mm-hmm. talking with some friends. And, you know, someone had mentioned like angry black men or black people. Why are we so angry? They weren't being offensive. This is a this is a yeah, just a this conversation. Uh, right? and, curiosity. And I, I often skew the safe Negro. People don't know that I'm not really the safe Negro to speak to about racial things because mm, yeah. very upset and very passionate about. And mm, yeah. I if under- I light skin probably ain't gonna be <laughs> <laughs> so, he's, he's one of us guys. He likes it, so no. Kept it red. Not happening, right? So I'm like, well, let me tell you this. Like, I was like, first of all, none of you are black men. So I don't think any of you have the right to even even utter out your mouth, get over it. Like, yeah. you have no clue what it's like to be born into a society that wasn't built for you, but built by you. You know what I mean? It wasn't exactly. built for us. Exactly. But it was built by us. Take me to the river, else. brother. Go. <laughs> 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 Talk to the <laughs> <shit. laughs> okay. So, yeah, so not, not the food before us, but not for us, by us, right? So, when you, when you put that perspective, black people in media, up until Essence and Ebony and Jet, when they were seen in the media, they were seen for sale as slaves. That was what they were printed as in newspapers. Wow, I didn't even think about that. You know what I mean? Or when you saw illustrations like Harper's Bazaar or, or Cosmo turn the century, it's kind of like antebellum. Like they're like, they're still servitude. They're still, you know, characterized as like these servants to the blacks, the white Question, society. Do you think the servitude in, in that regard, while we're on the topic, do you think the servitude is more in a, in a censorship um, uh, capacity, or is it represented otherwise? No, I think I think the sort of servitude thing is it's a very tricky um, subject matter, right? Because and I'm American black, so I'm not I'm not from the Caribbean or from from Africa, right? I'm American black. Family's been in Queens since the late 1800s, right? So very very American. There was and I was on the panel two weeks ago about this, and I mentioned my grandmother never told me she did domestic work, right? Um, because she wanted to. I guess shield her children and then shield her grandchildren from ever entering into service work again, right? Mm-hmm. Because those depictions of service work or you know servitude, those those images still stir up a slavery type of sense, right? True, true, true. However, that's not the case. Everything we do is in service, right? So if you work at a fast food restaurant, if you work in retail, if you work in a law firm, you're serving you're a client, you're right? You're right? But the dialogue, right? So we still think service equals slavery, mm. serving someone. But everything you do is, is service. Every every profession is a service profession because you serve your customer, you serve the client. Mm. And I think so if we stop feeling like we can't be in service 360, it will change our acceptance that we survived slavery. We weren't victims of slavery. We survived slavery. Mm. We broke through 400 years of oppression and society built around keeping us as less than. Right, mm-hmm. so you can't eat the same. You can't live the same conditions. You can't 
You can't read. You can't you can't leave this border. If you do, you get shot. Like slavery wasn't easy. It wasn't like, oh, let's just run, run up the plantation. We're just gonna run up the road. Cause there's someone there to shoot you at the end of the road. So that's like a thing that it's gonna take another four hundred years to to change Dude. that mentality that right. we're survivors, right. not victims. And right. once you own that, once you own the survivors, the survivors, survivorness, that'll work. Once you own the fact that you survived something, you're empowered to, to, mm. to move forward. But mm. we're still stuck in a place where we're ashamed that we're victims of something, and we're not victims of anything yeah. at all. And we're the only race in this country, and no offense to you guys that are, that are, that are Caribbean, that when they, we didn't get to we didn't get to choose to come here, right? This wasn't where I'm gonna come be an American citizen. You know, I'm gonna right. save my money back home and you know get that plane ticket or that boat or that boat ticket to come to America for opportunity. Right. We never got to see opportunity from the outside because mm-hmm. we've always been servicing it from the inside, right? Where all of my friends that live that that are Caribbean, and Jamaican, Haitian, Greek, whatever. I represent. Our relationship with, um, you know, colonialism and all that other stuff is completely different. Completely different. And then on top of that, we we miss a lot of other genocide too, like the yes. crack and heroin epidemic. A lot of things. And, and you got this. Yeah. You, you most most of your prime minister is a black, right? So mm-hmm. whatever the relationship is, the the, the colonialism side of it, like those islands and those rebellions, you have, we're gonna kill you if you don't get give, give us our respect. Right. So that the Europeans had to negotiate with each island and create some type of relationship. Because it was like, we were gonna beat your ass, right? right. But in America, it was a little different. We weren't quite the majority. We Mm. didn't quite have the power and we didn't quite have the lay of the land in a sense where, you know, it wasn't so isolated. It's a big country, it's a big landmass. How do you you find freedom? Where do you escape to? You're just gonna keep running and running. Like on an island, you're surrounded by water. You gotta figure out a way to get along with people. You know Mm. what I mean? You gotta understand that. Um, but then America also doesn't teach those things that happen in this in this hemisphere, right? We don't teach um, what's it, Toussaint Louverture from from Haiti. We don't teach that he rose up and rebelled. We don't even teach Nat Nat Turner in the U.S. Man, I cannot wait to see that movie. Yeah, so once so that's so I think that's education and education not just in textbooks but from your family telling the stories and telling the truth about that their past and what they overcame. Um, understanding why voting is important because. Our grandparents got hosed and dogs sick on them when they tried to register to vote. I think mm-hmm. that narrative is what's missing. We've got to stop being ashamed um, of the past and embrace the past as as survivors of the oppressors. I like that. How do you feel we inject that? And I don't want to keep it too long. Maybe you got things to do. Um, how do you feel like we inject that's that so much? Wow. <laughs> that's good. That means we're doing our job. Bro. <laughs> how do you feel like we inject that mentality into our culture? Because I love what you said. I didn't even, you know, as far as like, Survivorship was the word. Yeah, I feel like that would like give us a whole new perspective on how. Yeah. So, so my small part to plug blue again. My small part is that you know I'm changing the perception of what a black man looks like. So you're gonna turn the page into blue. You're gonna see him in Louboutins, Coach, Burberry, um, Dockers. You're gonna see. You know, he's gonna wear Timberlands too and all these different things, but. He's not going to be like a monolithic type of guy. He's going to be multidimensional, and it's going to be the same way you see any other person and any other male in America. So that's that's my job as a black media owner is to own the dialogue and tell the truth about who we are. And I think more people need to do that. I'm very upset. I don't know how far this statement's going to go, but like I hate VH1, mm. even though I tune in sometimes. And I hate VH1 not because I want them to erase love and hip hop. Or erase black ink. Those people got to eat and have jobs and 
all that. I'm not here to that. But, but why, show can't, the why can't you show me some other shit? Right. Like, I, yo, those people act like that. So I'm not going to pretend like bitches ain't running around arguing and fighting yeah. over dudes. Like, that's for real. But I can turn on any other channel and I'm going to see diversity in white people and their characters, right? Absolutely. So I'm going to see NYPD Blue and I'm going to see Will and Grace, right? So I get to see that arc of what a white person's life looks like. I'm going to see Friends and I'm going to see One Tree Hill. Right, but we only got one girlfriend one time. Uh-huh. We got we got in living color one time. We don't get the one diversity time. of one. Yeah. Everything's in one. So like, it, give me, give me, give me all of it. And it's it's also our job as black people to tune into own or tune into aspire or tune into into black media. Like, did something something happen with us as Americans where we think that we have to turn away from our own people to to achieve the next thing? Conditioning. But the next thing really is to bring the people that you come from with you. Mm-hmm. That's where the next. That's the new wave. That's the. That's I the think, wave. and I, you know, even even in this same breath, and I hope I just want to say this as positively as I can. I think um, with the rise of social media and seeing how we are um, treated by you know just the powers that be. I think we need we seriously need to take this as an opportunity to like really seriously come together. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like really band together and like, you know, therapy each other. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, this isn't okay, but we can find our commonalities mm-hmm. and be able to support each other. Cause people always want celebrities to jump out the window, right? Yeah. Like, yo, why isn't Jay-Z saying if Jay-Z knew that his quality of life would not change if he spoke up on our behalf because we got his back. He'd have been did it. Right. But at the same time, it's like, y'all want me to jump out the window and then when I still need to get my bills paid, it's like, right. also, I think fuck out of here. I also think that we need to even just step in and start handling our own problems. Not even like yeah. for them, like policing ourselves. Because it's like, it's, it's always going to be the bad people, right? It's always going to be bad. You know, let's start coming in and stepping in and doing it for ourselves. Offering economic um, workshops, offering programs that's going to help our people going into these neighborhoods and really trying to, you know, help these kids rather than looking for governments and different sanctions to make it. Let's do it ourselves. See, the problem, the problem with, with that, which that's the solution, right? That's going to take about another three generations to, to click in mm-hmm. to our psyche because we're still dealing with the remnants of on the plantation, someone that looked like you was out to get you, right? So you had the field, you had the house, and you had the kitchen. You had all these people um, of color, all black people, competing for this position in, I don't say white people, but I'll say white people, in this white American establishment. So we're still subconsciously living that way. We still see other black people as a competition to get a seat in the house or to get the chicken instead of getting the pig. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the problem. We got to change that thing. Um, we've got to stop thinking that we have to um, be like them to to be successful. Because the truth is, they're repackaging us and then selling it back to us. That's oh. that's that's oh. what's crazy about it. Like real. you know, like that. I think was it Mark Jacobs Mind just did a just did a fashion show this fashion week, and all the girls had afros. Mm-hmm. Oh, was it afro? Was it dread? Was it locks? Girls, it was locks. Yeah, it was all locks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I seen like, that shit. You know, it's hey, you know, you already how you responded to that, which is what crazy. What is that? I didn't, I didn't hear. He responded. Um, not that. Well, this is what I, what I read. He responded. He's saying that um, they don't tell um black women not to straighten their hair. 
But black women have to fit in here because it's assimilation. You right? know, yeah. You know what I think? It's like right. You know what I mean? So it's like people like we're the only we're the only culture on the face of the planet that our our pangs get ignored. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of like everybody's kind of like oh you know the Holocaust that happened or Armenian whatever or what have you or Chinese rebellion or whatever happened and every, we always have to feel sad for that and learn their histories and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. When it come to us, it's like yeah. I mean, well, we already here. You might as well get over it. It's like nah. No, so, so, like, so you don't tell the stories, right? <laughs> what happens, right? So what happens is you start to tell these stories. You have you have underground on TV, mm-hmm. and you even have on own. I love this new show, Queen Sugar. And then you have you have Birth of a Nation, right, with Nate Parker, and that took Hollywood like by surprise, and see how quickly they tore him down. Yo, they, yo, I, I don't even know why he sold that joint in the first place, yo. I know that bag, like seventeen million, is difficult to say. Oh no, but he had to see that coming from that gate, though. So, yeah, you definitely got to secure the bag, but at the same time, like <laughs> secure the bag alert. I love that. Secure the bag. Yeah, you grab, you grab that bag, handcuff your your arm to the handle, get that seventeen point five million. But and here's here's my and I probably close this. This is my right with it. So right when that was happening, when I got the the tweet or text about you know the buzz and uh, uh, Sundance or whatever, I reached out to his PR team and I reached out because I wanted to put him on the cover of the magazine. Right. And his PR team said, "Oh no, we uh we 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 have all all the media." Um, that we want set up. Mm. Fuck you mean? You cannot find a Nate Parker on the cover of nothing right now. Here I am, the black media. Wow. He makes a film about black people for black people. And here I am, the black media wanted to help spread this story to other black people because we're not going to Sundance, right? We don't. We may not even know this whole deal happened. But right, I want right, to tell. Right. I want to tell that story of this black man creating a film on his own with his own money and then getting this value afterwards, right? And. It bothered me because now the mainstream media has turned their back on him. Wow. But I'm not, I'm not gonna hold it against him, right. but we can't hire teams that we think understand the importance Yo, of We spend we too much time trying to educate white people on something that they're not really interested in understanding in the first place. Like it's really about self education and this is how we move in and that's how it is, and y'all catch up when y'all catch up. Exactly. But these people definitely have to be more aware of um who really has their back. They have to be more, you know. Yeah, and pay attention to your team. Because your team is only your team now if you got 17.5 million. It wasn't your team when you had 300,000 trying to do this film. Mm. You trying to come up. Asking for money to make it happen. Especially because your old team pitched you to us several times. And we did a lot of stories on Nate Parker before Birth of Nations. This is like, like even part of the growth of like Blue. Like, oh, look, this is somebody we recognized as talent whatever amount of years ago. This dude is doing this right here. But your new team said the media... All the media they wanted, which is non-black media, right. um, has already been locked in, and not, they're not doing any more interviews. This is a year ago. Wow. So. It's crazy. That's another thing. Sounds like there's an opportunity there. <laughs> but you definitely let us know. Well, um, what do you have? Is there anything you want to plug in that you're doing next that you you know? Yeah, I mean, we're just we're just growing. Um, we're we're about to start building out our, our blue TV. Um, we have a YouTube channel that we've had for several years now, but. We haven't kept up with our content because yeah. uh, it's hard work, but uh, we're, we're focusing a lot on videos. You're going to see a lot more video content uh, nice. from Blue. We're going to continue to print because print is, I think, what legitimizes us. It's something that's tangible. Otherwise, we're just something else on the web. Um, we're, we're real, you know, real matter, real material. Um, 
That was crazy. That <laughs> 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 oh man, you're the Remy in the system. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, look, look out for that. And then we are we're working on just some really cool digital opportunities going forward. Nice, nice. Let's go. Where can we the event too that's coming up too that you know people will hear about? That's fly. Where can we find you on the socials? So um, when you go to Barnes Noble. What's your question? We find blue. I'm sorry. No, like where can we find you on social media? Oh, okay. <laughs> Picked up my phone, got distracted. Uh, so I am on Twitter and Instagram as Devon is blue. So it's D E B O N I S B L E U, um, and LinkedIn and and Facebook as uh, D E D O N Johnson. Yeah. Nice. Yo, that's fly. And blue mag. And bluemagazine.com, and then we're gonna be launching bluelife.com in the next couple of months. Nice. You know, absolutely looking forward. Devon, it's been a pleasure speaking Super to you. inspiring. Definitely. I know we've been touching everything we talked about at the beginning, but maybe we'll do a part two in a couple of weeks. Word, word, word. We, yeah. we definitely got to do that. Yo, that's a fly. Yeah. Fly-ass idea. Let's do it. All right, man. Yo, everybody, thank y'all for tuning in once again. This is your host, Franz Bowen. It's your host, Travis Leeds. Man, stay driven. Stay driven. Nice. All right.